You you may be seated, and I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, continuing our way through the text. We're going to pick it up this morning. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 25 to 29. I want you to flip to Romans 2.25. You flip there. I want you to listen to this. I'm just uh, reflecting on all of this. We just sang this song, Behold Our God, and that's really what we need. We need to always keep our eyes on the Lord. Jesus, writing to the church at Smyrna in Revelation, he writes to two churches. You know, you got seven churches, and you got, they all have struggles of various kinds, and you got two good churches, right? One of them is Smyrna, one of them is Philadelphia. But to the church of Smyrna, he says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last. The, the desire there is for this church to focus on him, see him for who he is. And he goes on, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, the fact that you don't have very much money. Our Lord is aware of it. He says, and I also know, he says, I'm aware of, I know of your tribulation and your poverty, but he says, you are rich. And he says, and I also know the slander of those who say that they are Jews, people who are claiming to be Jewish, but are not, and are instead a synagogue of Satan. He says that they're rich, that they have everything that they need. He goes on to say, don't fear what you are about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful to death, and I will give you the crown of life. And that's, uh, I just want to mention that passage to you because that's really our focus during uh, offering time is that it wouldn't be about our money or our paycheck or our job security but that our heart would be pointed towards the Lord as our greatest treasure of all. And that's what we want our kids to see in us. So I just mentioned that. Um, And I think also as we speak today from the tail end of Romans chapter 2, that this passage might speak to it as well, because really what Paul is driving at in Romans 2 is that uh, we cannot have the externals of religion if we don't have a corresponding internal heart attitude. The outside means nothing if the inside isn't transformed. And so with that, I'd just like to remind you of where we are in Romans chapter 2. And uh, we'll just read this quickly again, 25 to 29, and then we'll pray, ask the Lord to illuminate the text in front of us, and then we'll get to work. So Romans chapter 2, verses 25 and following, it says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you Break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law, he says. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, recall to mind the Lord's words in Revelation, I'll make those who call themselves Jewish but are not, but instead are a synagogue of Satan, I'll make them know that it is you that I have loved. Well, here Paul touches on that same thing. He says, verse 28, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, and nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, 
His praise is, from, is not from man, but it is from God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, Lord, we just thank you again for this time just to come to you and to hear from your word. And I pray, Lord, that there would be none of me in this message today, but that you would speak to your people, that they would hear directly from you in the deepest part of their heart. In that secret inner place where no one can go except the man whose soul is there, where you seek to speak. Indeed, your Father, your spirit can go to the deepest inner places of our heart. You can go deeper and further into any one of us than any other person could ever hope to do because of who you are. And so, Lord, I just pray that this word would cut us today in the way in which you intend it. Father, as we work our way through this text this morning, help us to understand that the external is pointless and meaningless if it does not reflect what needs to be there, what is internal. And above all, oh Lord, we pray again today that you would work deep in our hearts. Do that internal deep work through your word, by your spirit, to the praise of your son. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. He had every advantage that you could possibly hope for. He was set aside for a glorious purpose. Indeed, he was going to lead Israel out of its bondage. God had saved him from murder as a child. He had raised him in the palaces of Egypt, giving him the most sophisticated instruction, allowing him the most advanced enculturation into all of the ways of the Egyptians. And he had fired his faith in such a way as to encourage him to stand up for his own fellow countrymen, the Jews, of whom he was truly born. Tragically, though, when Moses had come of age and had desired to lead his people, he murdered an Egyptian slave driver. And he was met with hostility by his own people. And despite all of this, God was still with him as he fled into the wilderness. God, in fact, continued to mold him and to shape him to be the leader that he wanted him to be. For 40 years, he walked with him. He led him to his wife. He led him to his wife's family, his father-in-law, who would be a tremendous influence upon him in his ministry. And of course, when the moment had finally arrived, when Moses was ripe and ready for leadership, God spoke to Moses from out of a burning bush, revealing himself clearly, astonishingly, and concretely. There was nothing ambiguous or subjective about it. It was there, he was real, and he was speaking And as he called and commanded Moses from the burning bush, he forged those final hammer blows that were necessary to set Moses aside to be the ultimate weapon in his hand to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. Back he goes to rendezvous with his people. And Exodus gives us this really bizarre account In Exodus chapter 4, as Moses is traveling back after all the ways that God had worked in his life to shape him and to mold him into his perfect leader, it says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. What? After all this time, 
God has decided he's ultimately not going to use you, Moses? Why? What had Moses done? What was the moral failure that led to God wanting to execute Moses? The passage tells us that Zipporah, his wife, took flint and cut off her son's foreskin. Essentially had her son circumcised. And she took the foreskin and she touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are to me a bridegroom of blood. And so God left him alone. What a strange, what a strange text. After all this time, after all the energy that God had put into shaping and molding Moses, we see here in Moses a man who in his heart is ready to depend upon God. He is obedient in a great many things, but he has not been obedient in everything. He has failed in one thing, and that was the sign, bestowing the sign, the external sign of the covenant upon his own child. The events narrated in these verses are significant to us, not only for what they tell, but for what they show. This is crucial, church. This is crucial to our text today. The Lord remembered his covenant promises to Israel, and he was going to rescue his people, but Israel had a responsibility to remember its covenantal commitments to the Lord as well. We see today two things. The externals are not irrelevant. They still matter to God. In fact, one of the tragedies that Satan tries to work upon his church is to drive such a wedge between what is internal and what is external that we can lead a life of lechery, believing that it doesn't matter what we do so long as we have the right knowledge in our heart. This is false. But the other extreme is that we can become legalists. If not lechers, then legalists who will become consumed with the externals and making sure that we're living moral lives to the detriment and the ignoring of what ought to be internal. Look with me, Romans chapter 2. Paul touches on this. He says in verse 25, circumcision is indeed of value. Full stop. The first thing he says here is that circumcision does have meaning. It does have value. We see that in the account of what happened with Moses on the side of the road as he's on his way back to Egypt. It does matter to God. So what is circumcision? What do we mean when we talk about circumcision? Well, we see that circumcision was a mark upon one's body. It was particular of the Jewish nation. It was ordered by God. And it was something that he had given to them on the day that he made his covenant with Abraham. Covenant, not like a contract, but a sort of a relational a commitment, entirely similar to what we see within marriage, the marriage commitment. It's like a gold wedding ring on the finger of a bride in which that bride permits an observer to know from a distance that she is indeed married to someone. Um, and so it was with circumcision. It was a physical mark that could identify the people of God. Not necessarily easily visible, of course, because they would have been dressed in clothes just like the rest of us. Nevertheless, something that they knew was there and which did, in fact, identify them in their flesh as belonging to the people of God. It was commanded of Abraham and his sons. And although it was a physical mark in the flesh, it had a deeply spiritual meaning 
And as we think upon this deeply spiritual meaning, we realize by looking at the Jews and considering what Paul says here in this passage, that it is not to be dismissed once it is done. It is indeed a mark in the flesh, a mark in the body, but it is a spiritual truth which must be reminded, called to memory, recalled, and it is an experience which must be cultivated over the course of one's life. Genesis chapter 17, God gives this mark to Moses, uh, beg your pardon, to Abraham, and Abraham is to give it to his son after him and command his son to give it to every other child after him. In Genesis 17, we read, quote, God speaking to Abraham, quote, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and between your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, he says, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God, the descendants of Abraham. I will be their God. And then God says to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, the Jews had this, and they prided themselves on it. In fact, they unrighteously depended upon it and relied upon it. To be sure, circumcision is a God-given sign, and it is a seal of God's covenant, but it's not a magical ceremony. It's not to be understood as a charm or a talisman, the way some people might keep a lucky rabbit's foot in their pocket. This is not what circumcision is intended to be. It's not a charm. It didn't provide them with any permanent insurance, any permanent coverage against the wrath of God. It was no substitute for obedience. It constituted, rather, a commitment to walk in obedience. That's what it was supposed to be. And the Jews, having received this placed an almost superstitious confidence in the saving power of their circumcision. Rabbinic epigrams from that day, from that age, expressed it, quote, circumcised men do not descend into Gehenna. This is the teaching. If you are circumcised, you will not go to hell. Kind of like how the Roman Catholic Church teaches about baptism saving you from hell. You may go to a lower form of purgatory, but so long as your child is baptized as an infant, You're good to go. In this sense, the Roman Catholic Church has taken the ceremony of baptism and turned it into the exact same kind of charm or talisman or lucky rabbit's foot as what the Jews did with circumcision. And what Paul is hammering out here is that this is not what circumcision is intended to mean. How does he do this? How does he counter this false assurance? He begins, obviously, with an epigram of his own. He says, quote, circumcision has value if you observe the law. In other words, it's good if it works to the effect that you are obedient to the law. He doesn't deny the divine origin of circumcision, but Paul conditions its value on the ground that he who is circumcised is now required to keep the whole law. It's conditional. So here's the question, okay? What's so special about circumcision? Isn't circumcision supposed to be some sort of an advantage? Doesn't circumcision, as God's covenant promised, somehow protect and sustain the Jews? 
And the answer is yes, to the extent, though, that it is a sign of a covenant which is conditional. It has conditional value. You'll notice what he says there. Look back at it, verse 25. He says, circumcision is indeed a value if. That word if is such a big word. I say to my kids sometimes, after dinner, I will give you ice cream if your room is fully clean. Are they excited to have ice cream? I cannot begin to tell you the number of times they've come to the dinner table ready for ice cream after dinner, and their rooms are nowhere near clean. And they will say, but, but you're our dad, and, and you love us, and you had said something earlier in the day about us getting ice cream after dinner. And I said, if your room was clean. You see, Jews were placing this unbelievable weight on the sign, but the sign was never the end-all and the be-all of God's relationship with his people. It was intended to be a symbol of something that had to happen at a far deeper level. Wives, ask yourself this question. Does it really matter that your husband wears a wedding ring if he's completely faithless to you? Is the grand extent of all that you look for in your husband simply that he puts a wedding band on his middle finger? Now, men, you're thinking to yourself, that's right. I provide for my wife. I make sure there's food on the table. I've got a good job, and I I provide. But men, is the grand extent of your relationship with your wife simply to be that you provide for her? Or, men and women, is there intended to be something deeper there, such as a relationship of love? Uh, A couple of years ago, I was on vacation. It was summertime, and I came to church, and I worshiped, and one of the church members came up to me and said, what are you doing here? You're on vacation. And I was, it was kind of an awkward moment. I said, well, I'm here to worship the Lord. And of course, it was kind of a funny moment where I was like, oh, right, of course. Of course, you're here to worship just like the rest of us. Imagine husbands and wives going on vacation, and on vacation, you take your spouse out for dinner, and your spouse says to you, what are you doing taking me out for dinner? You're on vacation. Wouldn't that be awkward? You don't have to do nice things for me. You don't have to love me. You don't have to have a relationship with me because, you know, you're on vacation. Indeed, I read an article this last week of a couple whose marriage is thriving Because after years of struggling in their relationship, they had finally figured out what the problem was, and they had solved it by buying two houses and living apart from each other. They said, our marriage has never been better. What we've done is we've taken marriage, and we've redefined it into something that it is not, and we're living that alternate reality and calling it marriage. That's what this couple is doing, and that's what Paul is attacking in this passage right here. You see, the Jews had their own definition of what a relationship with God ought to look like, and they called it circumcision. And it didn't matter what the Lord said. It only mattered how they defined it. And what Paul is attacking here in this passage is you cannot identify, you cannot understand your identity as a Jew the way you want to understand it. You have to understand it, and you have to come to terms with what it means to be a Jew, to have the identity of a Jew based on what God says. And so Paul here, if we could just summarize it, he says, point blank, circumcision minus obedience 
equals uncircumcision. In other words, having the wedding ring on your finger minus having a relationship with your spouse is the same as just not even putting a wedding ring on your finger at all. And consequently, he goes on to say, while uncircumcision with obedience equals circumcision, Paul could be understood as saying here, if a man loves his wife and cherishes her and vice versa, and they're not wearing wedding bands, that's okay because they are still living out the marital relationship. The emphasis then isn't on the piece of metal on your finger. It's on the relationship that happens from the heart between a married couple. That's what Paul is driving at here. And so he gets from this to the ultimate significance, which is that the bona fides, the, the absolute genuine evidence of membership within the covenant people of God is neither circumcision nor possession of the law, but instead it is the obedience which both circumcision and the law spoke to and required. It had to be both. Their circumcision didn't make them what their disobedience proved that they were not, okay? This is not salvation by obedience. Paul isn't saying we can be saved by how hard we work to be faithful to the Lord, but he is saying that obedience must be present as an evidence of salvation. Obedience must be present as an indication of a true relationship that you have with the Lord. Therefore, the Jews are just as much exposed to the judgment of God as the Gentiles. And their circumcision, which they prided themselves on, is in fact no guarantee whatsoever that they are saved because as far as Paul is concerned, if there isn't the heart to go with it, it's meaningless. And that is why I felt necessary to stand up and just remind you once again this morning, when we take up an offering... That offering can become too perfunctory for us. I have determined I'm going to give 10%. I'm going to tithe. Boom, there it is. And I just do it like rote every week or every month as the case may be. My paycheck, 10%. Boom, there it is. And then I'm going to take this time to fellowship and catch up with my friend whom I haven't seen since last Sunday. And I want you to understand there's nothing wrong with fellowship and visiting, but let's not let tithing turn into something that is merely perfunctory and external, it should always call us to an examination of the heart, and it should always be done from the heart. This is the issue that the Jews are doing with circumcision. Perhaps this might become a struggle that we're having with our checkbooks. All of our faith, all of our worship must be done with a focus on our relationship with Christ. The extraordinary reversal of roles here needs to be commented upon. The Jews believed arrogantly because of their circumcision that they would judge the Gentiles. They would look down upon them with condescension and say, well, I'm glad I'm not a Gentile. And what Paul is saying here is, actually, if the Gentiles strive to have a relationship with God, even though they don't have the externals that you have, they will have that relationship with God. And you see here a reversal where it is now the Gentiles who will be judging you, the Jews, for your lack of a relationship with God. That's pretty stunning. This is a trap that we can all fall into if we're not careful. There is a difference between the way God defines our identity and the way that we define our own identity. And we must understand our identity, not however we would choose to identify ourselves, but we have to understand our identity as God defines it according to how he looks at us. 
which is to say, upon the heart. Now, Paul proceeds to explain the real meaning, the real understanding of what Jewish identity is. And I just got to pause here for a moment and chuckle. I grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s going to church, and as I began to sense God's call in my life to be involved in ministry and to teach the Word, at that time, all the rage was you got to preach to felt needs. In other words, there are people in your community who don't know the Lord, but they're having some sort of spiritual struggle, and you got to tap into that. you got to figure out what it is that they're struggling with, and then you got to preach to that, and that's how they will come to church. What do you suppose is the felt need of this passage here? You need to become a true Jew. Whoever wakes up in the morning and thinks to themselves, I'm, I'm needing to be Jewish today. Have you ever had that thought, waking up in the morning? This is not a felt need that is ever felt. <laughs> and therefore, if we go through the scriptures with a view of trying to preach what people think they need to hear, you know how much of the scriptures we will never, ever touch on? And the question becomes then, do we want to hear what God has to say, believing that he knows us better than we know ourselves? Of course, that's how we should approach it, which means if that's how we're going to approach it, we're going to have to preach through the whole Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because God and his love for us has spoken to us that way. So who woke up this morning thinking, I really want to be a true Jew? Probably none of you. I'm going to go ahead and bet money on the fact that not one single person in here, and of course I say that, and I expect somebody to raise their hand, who's, oh no, I woke up this morning, you know, just to mess with me, right? Yeah, see, I, I knew it was coming, I knew it was coming. But of course, Paul now proceeds, he's just told you, this is what Judaism is not. It is not circumcision minus a relationship, minus something going on in the heart. So then what is it? What is it? A true Jew, what a true Jew is, is that a man is Jewish if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart. That's what Paul is driving at here. This concept isn't new to Paul. Actually, it's been there all along, even going back to Abraham, which Paul, in another letter, will be make, you know, he'll take the time to explain it, that God called Abraham. Abraham believed in God, walked with God, followed God all by faith before he ever received circumcision. And so there was, even in the life of Abraham, the one who first received the sign of the covenant, there was, before the receiving of that sign, a heart relationship of trust and dependence upon God. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He says if a guy is, is circumcised in his heart, if it's on the inside, then it's just as good as if it's on the outside. And this, again, as I said, this isn't original to Paul. It's been there all along. Moses, writing in the Pentateuch, two crucial passages, Deuteronomy chapter 10, and he reiterates it again in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Don't flip, just listen. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, Moses says, God speaking through Moses, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and no longer be children. God is calling his people to maturity, and he is not speaking about an actual surgical procedure performed upon their bodies. He's talking about something that happens in their soul. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses making promises to the nation of Israel, they will walk in faithfulness and obedience with the Lord, makes this statement, and the Lord your God, if you are faithful to him, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. We come to the end of the Mosaic Law. We come to the end of Deuteronomy. And Moses is saying, hey, we got to circumcise ourselves in our hearts. All this talk about being circumcised in the foreskin of our flesh, all of this is intended to point to something that is actually going on in our souls, within our spirits. And what, Paul, what, sorry, what Moses is saying there at the tail end of Deuteronomy is that we need God to do something to our hearts if we're going to live. It doesn't matter then a great deal what's happening on the outside if there isn't something going on on the inside. Salvation is based upon what's happening in our hearts. And of course, Moses touches on it, but we see all of the prophets, both major prophets and minor prophets of the Old Testament, hammering this home as well. Jeremiah chapter 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, he says. Again, we see it in Ezekiel chapter 44. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner who is uncircumcised, you'd expect him at this moment to say in the flesh, but that's not what he says. No foreigner who is uncircumcised in heart and flesh, he puts them both together, of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. In other words, it requires the heart. And again, we see it in Ezekiel 36. God speaking through Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Ah, church, don't you hear that? I mean, let's just step back for a second and think about circumcision. Probably so much of the teaching we hear all has to do with the fact that it's a sign of the covenant, the sign of Mosaic covenant, the sign of the Old Testament covenant. But I want you to just step back for a second. I want you to understand what what it really is. Israel was always intended, as Moses makes clear in Exodus, to be a nation of priests. Not a nation with priests, a nation of priests. That is, although they had a a priesthood there, as a whole country, they were intended to shine as a light to the countries around them. And they were to welcome foreigners to be a part of the people of God. Of course, if you're a foreigner and you want to come be a part of the people of God, that involves embracing all that God has for you, which involves circumcision. Now, most of us today, probably all of us today, if we are circumcised, it happened to us when we were very young. I read recently an account of a young man who uh, was having some, some struggles physically. And at the age of 22, he decided to undergo circumcision in order to correct some of those struggles. And tragically, this young man committed suicide. He had written a letter home to his mom, a suicide note, in which he detailed that the reasons why he was committing suicide was because, having undergone the surgical process of circumcision, he now found that that area of his body was beyond management. It was entirely too sensitive And it was constantly irritated. And although the doctors assured him that that irritation and that sensitivity would subside over time, they had told him it could be anywhere from, you know, a few weeks to a few months to maybe a year at the outset, he found himself growing increasingly desperate because of how irritated it was, how irritating to him it was. And tragically, he found he just couldn't live with it anymore. It was just driving him nuts. And so after a period of a few months... He committed suicide, which is tragic. 
but I was stunned that the Lord brought that article. I read this just this last week. I was stunned that I saw would read about this in the news, and it reminded me of what circumcision was, what they would have understood it before any t- conversation around it being a sign of the covenant. We understand that circumcision is something that is incredibly sensitive. I mean, after all, what is taking place here is what God is calling his people for is that there is something that has to be done surgically in your skin, which requires great vulnerability, great vulnerability. The most delicate, most intimate part of your body has to be put into the hands of another. So it is a matter of great vulnerability for the purposes of removing the foreskin, which will lead to a heightened sensitivity. So vulnerability is followed by sensitivity. And sensitivity is there all to speak to the issue of what you are really after, which is a greater closeness or a deeper intimacy with God. That's really what circumcision is. It is indeed a surgical procedure, but it's a surgical procedure that comes with certain physical reactions. And those physical reactions all point to something that is ultimately spiritual. God had commanded it externally, but he had done so being clear to teach all the way through that even though it was external, it was to point to something internal. And what it pointed to is essentially the desire of your heart is you want to be closer to God. You want to have a deeper intimacy, and you understand that in order to have that deeper intimacy with God, you must have a greater sensitivity to the things of God, and to have a greater sensitivity to the things of God, that will require you, in a very real way, to make yourself vulnerable before God. Get those three words in your head now. Vulnerability leading to sensitivity leading to deeper intimacy. That's essentially what is being driven home here by this surgical procedure which God gave initially to Abraham. But none of it was intended to stop at the flesh. It was all intended to teach the heart about something deeper, something more precious, which was your relationship with God. That's what they're, they're driving at here. God is calling for his people to remember that a close relationship with him would only be possible if they would choose to place themselves in his hands in order to be altered. Of course, he begins to teach this through a physical procedure, but as the scriptures have made clear, it's intended to point to a deeper reality. You have to be physically altered, not in the physical level. You have to be spiritually altered. Your alteration has to take place at the point of your soul. You need new desires. You need new wants. You need new goals in life. And what needs to happen is you should want God. So this is an all or nothing proposition. You want to walk with the Lord? You're all in. I mean, that expression, all in, takes on a whole different meaning when we understand it in light of circumcision. Now, there's no test drive here. I think I want to walk with God for a little bit, just kind of see how it turns out. And, uh, and, and if it works good, then I will go all in. There's no test drive. There's no period of time in which you can have it, and then you can return it within 30 days. There's, there's nothing like this. No, no. If you want God, you've got to want all of God. You've got to want him all the way right now. You're all in, or you're not in at all. 
This is the idea that Paul is driving at. He's saying in order to be a true Jew, yeah, there's an external action that is done here, but it is intended to speak to the fact that you're all in. And what the Jews were saying was, no, 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 I've done the external action. I can keep those deep, dark, quiet places of my heart back for myself. I've got the sign of the circumcision, and that's all I need. That is not all that God wants. God is not as interested in external obedience as he is in comprehensive, total obedience. Now, growing up, again, in the church, love the church, love the people of the church, and I fully understand why we say things the way we say things, but we've got to be careful. Growing up in the church over the years, I heard this expression, I'm into religion. Uh, no, no, that's not what we said. I'm into relationships, not religion. We would say these things, Right? How many of you have ever witnessed to someone and you've poo-pooed the ceremony and the empty traditions of the church by sharing with your neighbor something to the effect of, hey, you know what? You're not into all the stuffiness and all the liturgical traditions of the church. You know what? That's great. Me neither. I'm not into religion. I'm into a relationship. How many of you have ever shared the gospel that way? I have. I have. I'm not judging you. I've done it lots of times. And there's, that's a great way to begin the conversation, but here's my fear. And this is exactly what Paul is not trying to press home here. My fear is that in sharing the gospel this way, hey, I'm into a relationship and not a religion, that what we are doing is we are swinging the pendulum too far the other direction. So we are right to be concerned about externals, We are right to be concerned about resting in and placing our confidence in the outward forms and appearances of church. And this is what I touched on as I began last week's message. It is a false sense of security. Many of us might pride ourselves this way as well. I go to a Baptist church. We're a people of the book. My preacher preaches at me every Sunday from the Bible. I'm good to go. None of those things matter. None of those things ultimately save you. I I shouldn't have said none of those things matter because my job security... (laughs) You know, I went too far. I apologize. Let me just walk that back. That's not the point I'm trying to make. You say, I am saved just because I go to church and my pastor preaches to me from the Bible every Sunday. Your pastor should preach to you from the Bible every Sunday. You need God's word because it's an instrument towards your relationship. But you can just as easily come in here week after week after week and hear all of this Hear nothing from God, not ever allow your heart to be vulnerable before the Lord, not ever allow him to come into your heart and cut you in a deep and personal way. You're impervious to what the Lord is saying through his scriptures. You're going to sit here week after week. You're going to go through the motions, but you'll never let God in. And as a result, you deceive yourself into thinking you have an intimacy with God, which you don't have. That's the danger we face as Baptists. That's the danger that everyone faces We all want to swing either towards lechery, which is I get to do whatever I want, and it doesn't matter what I do so long as I know the truth. That's a heresy. But, of course, the other side of it is moralism or legalism, where, yes, I am saved because I go to church, I tithe, I put my 10% in the offering every week, I do all of these things, I go to Bible study, but you have never let God penetrate to the deepest recesses of your heart. Both extremes are wrong, 
And it would be wrong to think that what Paul is saying here in this particular passage is that he is somehow separating one from the other, saying you've got to have the internals and the externals don't matter. That is not what Paul is saying. That is equally wrong. We've got to keep the two together. That's what Paul is really driving at here. What he is calling for is personal holiness. Because we have to have personal holiness in order to have intimacy with Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, the author of Hebrews says, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Notice the drive of that text. The desire ought to be that you want to see the Lord. To see the Lord, to have intimacy with God, does call for us to have personal holiness. So there is an action that is required. It starts in the heart, but it must also work itself out into the way that you live your life. Moses understood this necessity for personal holiness. When he was called at the burning bush, he complained that he was unworthy, and God answered argument after argument after argument, but he still cried out that there was something wrong in himself. Moses says to the Lord, in Exodus chapter 6, he says, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am a man of uncircumcised lips. What is really interesting to me is if you just read through the scriptures and you just track that word circumcision, the word that the Jews placed so much priority on, the fact that they were circumcised, like it was a magic talisman, a lucky rabbit's foot, the way that the people of the Old Testament used it, the holy ones, the prophets, and the the different God, men of God of old, they understood over and over again that this term was an adjective that applied to a heart. It should apply to their heart. Moses himself says, Pharaoh's not going to listen to me because my lips are not holy before you. Well, later he says, that he says the same thing. He says, behold, I am a man of uncircumcised lips. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? M- Moses got his answer from the Lord, but so did Isaiah. Isaiah said the same thing. In Isaiah chapter 6, he says, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And it was then that the Lord sent the angel, the seraphim, with coals of fire from the altar to touch his lips. They were the coals from the altar upon which the blood of the lamb had dripped. And judgment for sin had been satisfied by the death of the substitute. And righteousness and power was now provided because of that lamb to the prophet. In other words, his lips being uncircumcised, this whole heart condition of being uncircumcised, it could be addressed if we look to the lamb, which is Jesus Christ. All too often, we again pride ourselves on being Baptist or pride ourselves on being Pentecostal or pride ourselves on being Catholic. And I don't want you to misunderstand. There is a call from the Lord to repent of things that are not consistent with his holiness. So if you're Catholic, you pride yourself on the fact that you were baptized as an infant. I call upon you to place your faith in Christ and to repent of your Roman Catholicism and to walk out of that into true righteousness and go to a church where you truly can worship the Lord. The externals are not irrelevant, but the priority is on the internal, the heart. 
And we hear this every week. Jesus Christ died for your sins, died for my sins. My fear is that some of us, rather than in humility before the Lord, rather than saying, God, make my heart vulnerable, cut me in my heart so that I can repent and have more intimacy with you, Lord. Help me to walk in the path of righteousness so that I can be closer to you. What we do instead is we say, well, that preacher didn't have enough jokes in his sermon today. The worship service was all right, but man, the drummer was just one beat off. Or the guitar player just kept hitting that one note wrong consistently. Or they didn't sing the songs that I liked. Or the preacher said something that I disagreed with. What did the Lord say in his word? That's the question. And did he speak to your heart? Did you let him speak through his word, by his spirit, to your heart? Or do you take all of these criticisms of all these other things and use that as your thick skin to keep the Lord at bay? See, that's the real issue, church. That's the real issue. My prayer for you this morning is that you would let the Lord in. That you would allow him to remove the foreskin of your heart so that you would hear him speaking to you in his word. This can become all too quickly, all too easy, just a matter of tradition, just a matter of rote in so many ways. But it should never be that way for those people who have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Exodus tells us that at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. This man that had spent over 80 years of his life at this point walking with God. So you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, well, I've been walking as a Christian for 80 years. Well, it doesn't mean that you have complete obedience with the Lord. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he's entirely satisfied. His wife, Zipporah, took a flint and he cut off her, her son's foreskin. Sorry, 40 years. He's 40 years old at this point. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and he touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Discipling new believers, getting them to read through the books of the Bible. We always come to this passage and it's at this point that every new believer I've ever discipled one-on-one is like, What? Like, can you explain that to me? There's an element of prophecy in what Zipporah is saying to her husband. Moses, he's a Jewish man. He'd become her husband. But their relationship, in God's eyes, was to be established through blood. Not that this is God's design necessarily for marriage, but Moses is functioning as a type of one who is to come. You see, it took the blood of her son in order to secure long-term a continuing relationship with her husband. Her husband would not continue to be her husband. He would die unless the blood of her son was applied. That's the typology. That's the picture that we see in this account. And it's ultimately a picture of Jesus Christ. It takes the blood of the son applied on our account in order for the church, that is you and me, 
to continue to enjoy our relationship with the husband, the one who shepherds us. If you would grow in any kind of relationship with God, if you would week after week seek to come and be blessed and benefited by what God says in his word, it must first begin by recognizing that you, no matter how moral you are, no matter how good you are, you will never measure up to God's standards of righteousness. Your holiness is nothing in his eyes. He must save you, or you cannot be saved. And he saves you when you realize in your sin that you have offended him and that you are accountable to him. And you receive Jesus. What a great statement to say that Christ is to us a bridegroom of blood. Not in the sense that a third party had to have bloodshed in order for our relationship to be established, but that he himself sheds his blood for his bride. He himself establishes us in a relationship with him. Give yourselves to Christ today. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for your word. Lord, it is so easy for your church, your people, to become consumed with externals and ignore the internal. And our prayer this morning, Lord, help that not to be the case with us. In a thousand different ways, you call us to a deeper holiness, a deeper intimacy, but we oftentimes don't hear it because we don't want to hear it. Our prayer this morning, as it should be every morning, God, peel back the layers of my heart. Go deep and allow me to hear what you say in the dark inner spirit of my soul. God, allow me and all those who are here today to hear what your spirit says through your word and let there be truth on the inside that matches what we show on the outside. Do this, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.